This is the reading from God's Word this morning, uh, from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Where is the one who has been King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw this child, his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Good morning. We made it. It's 2020. There's something about that number. I don't know. It's intimidating. I don't know what it is. So my name is Len. I'm the transitional pastor here. What you might not know is that um, today's a big day in the Christian calendar. For many people, for millions actually, of Christians, this day is as big, almost as big as Christmas Day. In the Jewish world, it's the Feast of Lights, Hanukkah, celebrating the rededication of the temple after the Great Exile. Then there's Rosh Hashanah, New Year's Day. And then the Feast of Epiphany for us, which is that big day, and we'll get there in a minute. Like Dan said, this, uh, this change in years is a time to take stock. So we're going to take a look at where we sit in this transition process with this fancy, fancy diagram. And the direction of progress is left to right, starting with Rob's leaving last summer, then moving to the search process on the right. People have been asking about this, and so I thought this is a good time to just update, and some, be, some of you may never have heard this before. So the process initially was bringing closure. Everyone moves through that process at their own speed, but we have to say goodbye before we can say hello, and part of my job has been to prepare you for change toward the next pastor who's coming. We've also been working at renewing connections to God and to one another. So hopefully now we're in that middle place on that diagram getting used to the idea of change. And my job is also to uh, help assess structures and ministries, make adjustments where needed, keep us moving. A big adjustment was hiring Kyle. And even though he's an Oilers fan, nobody's perfect, right? Oh, we got another one. Oh, my goodness. It's spreading like a virus. What have we done? Well, some people love underdogs. Canucks seven in a row. Okay? Putting it in perspective. So the next step is the vision process. Who has God called us to be? And what has God called us to do? Our mission. And that process will involve all of you, I hope, at some level. 
and we'll let you know shortly uh, more of what that's going to actually look like. So we get started today in Matthew chapter 2 because we need to understand God's mission, and this is sort of step one and conveniently fits right into the church calendar. So, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we're not long after Jesus' birth here. We're not really sure about the time frame. Some scholars say it maybe was a year, two years. And we read about these wise men bringing gifts. But who are these guys? If you saw the Nativity movie this year or a previous year, you have an idea already. In the writings of Sylvia, a deacon in the church around 385, she had visited Jerusalem and she found this celebration going that the Christians there called Epiphany from a Greek word that means appearing. It was associated with the journey of these wise men and the revelation that the Messiah did not come only for Israel and the Jews, but for who? For all of us, for all people. So this has, been a, has long been a feast day of the church, celebrated on the first Sunday following the change of year. So what about these wise men? Again, this, there's been literally, I think, hundreds of paintings of this through the centuries because it's a massive feast day. I like this one. The colors are really rich. You can't really see them here, but lots of beautiful art. So as for the New Testament, the word we have in Greek looks like this. Magos, or magos, magi. This word appears in ancient Persian documents, and magi were the religious caste among the Persians before the time of Jesus. So think of these guys as Babylonian priests. And what did Babylonian priests do? They were followers of Zoroaster. His main interest was astrology. So they believed that a divine creator ordered all things, the earth and the heavens. They would agree maybe with Einstein who said that physics taught him that God does not play dice with the universe. So Einstein could see through science that the universe had an order. An amazing order. And these magi believe that the order that we see on earth is reflected. It's somehow a mirror of heaven. So they believe that the law of the creator was mirrored in the stars. What the stars were doing was what God was doing. Uh, So actually, they had a lot in common with a Hebrew way of seeing the world. God is involved in the smallest details. So there are really two things that we should notice about this story. First is the gifts, and the second is the magi themselves, these, these pagan priests. Because we all come to Jesus as we are, right? And we bring our best gifts, although sometimes they don't look like much. When my daughter was just turning three years old, she loved to play outside. She was really fond of certain insects and flowers. And one day she came in with her hands and her face really dirty, and she brought me a gift, a couple of wilted sunflowers, these were wild sunflowers that grow in the Okanagan. They're about three to four inches across. And the petals were droopy and dirty. And I looked at them and I thought, it really doesn't matter what they look like. It's a gift of love. And I got to thinking, we do this to God a lot. We bring, we bring broken, wilted things. And I think he's okay with that. I think most of our gifts, even the broken ones, are accepted with joy. So back to this passage, there's a few things that Matthew's trying to tell us in this story. First, he wants us to see the gifts. 
There's a variety of ways we could interpret them, and it makes sense to start with the culture of the day. It was simple enough. Gifts for a king were always precious gifts. Gold represented the most valued means of commerce. It was also used to create sacred items for worship, like in the temple and the stories we have in the Old Testament. Scholars also see other symbolic meanings here. So gold represents kingship. Frankincense is symbolic of the priestly role. And myrrh is a symbol of Jesus' death to come. So that's the first thing to notice, the gifts. Then secondly, Matthew wants us to notice these priests themselves. And then third, we'll talk about this incredible journey that they made. So why include this story in the New Testament? Have you wondered? What is it that Matthew wants us to learn here? For starters, that even pagan priests can worship Jesus, right? We'll talk more about that. Secondly, he wants us to see that God is active even outside our work in the world, outside the in-group who know God. God is at work. God is a missionary God. That's a nice little theological phrase. What does it mean? So Ed Stetzer, the well-known American teacher, says this, We often wrongly assume that the primary activity of God is in the church, rather than recognizing that God's primary activity is in the world. And the church is God's instrument sent into the world to participate in His redemptive mission. So that, so that gives a very practical meaning to us as a body of Jesus in the world, the hands and feet of Jesus. And stories like this of the Magi remind us that God is bearing witness to Himself in the world. He's active even before we show up with our programs, our meetings, our money, our good intentions to help. So that means that when we arrive, we have some work to do that maybe we didn't expect. We have to first pay attention to what God is already doing because He was at work before we got there. And we could read many other New Testament stories to get a sense of this, like the story of Cornelius, the Roman soldier and that Jesus uses as an example of faith. Think about that a minute. Romans were the oppressors. They were the occupying army. Can you imagine if I came to preach and I used Lady Gaga as an example of faith? Or maybe Richard Dawkins? That's how shocking that must have been. Or the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember that one? So where Jesus uses a pagan outsider as an example of compassion. So these people, in the sense we understand, are pagans who seem to know God. And it's tough to know exactly what to do with that. Except that our neat categories of in and out don't always work. So God is saying, pay attention here. I'm going to teach you something about your faith, about the way I work in the world through outsiders. Mind-bending, right? Because we like to simplify things. We divide the world into black and white, good and bad, saved and unsaved. But God seems to like to color outside our lines. So when we're outside the doors of the church, out in the neighborhood, we have to first find out what people already know about God. So a couple years ago, I was sitting with an old friend. Paul's a YOM elder, about 10 years older than me, and he told me a story from his younger days. He was in a village in the Yukon. It was a beautiful summer day. He was sitting on the deck of a beautiful old log house that had been turned into a pub. There were only a few tables, and they were full, and he was the only one at the open table. So a younger man brought a beer and asked if he could join him. And, and of course, they started talking about Whitehorse history, the long winters, etc. 
And eventually, Paul began sharing his faith. And this younger man listened politely. Paul says that in those days, his faith was really more about walking in the lines. It was really more religion and morality than love and relationship. He really did assume that he was the teacher and that made others the learners. The young man he talked to was into a kind of Buddhism, Zen, more philosophy than religion. But Paul noticed something about this man that impressed him. He was humble and really gracious. And he had a fundamental confidence that if there was a God, then grace and love were at the center of creation. And Paul, at that time, he really hadn't quite got there yet. Here was a pagan showing him something true about God. We've sometimes thought that the church has a mission, but actually God's mission has a church. It's not our mission. It's God's mission, and He's been doing it far longer than you or I. Now think about that a minute. We've sometimes acted as if God is with us and in our churches and nowhere else, not out there in the world until we show up. Does that strike you as odd? Does it fit with Psalm 139? Where can I go from your presence? The answer the psalmist expects is nowhere. You can't escape God's presence in the world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. And it's also important to remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait to show his love to me until I got it all together. The Spirit was at work long before that. Our view of the gospel and mission has sometimes been that when we go, we're boldly going where no one, not even God, has gone before. When I think about that now, I think, man, that is really naive. So long as we think it's our mission, then it's in our control. But when we realize that God is at work in our city, in our neighborhoods, among all people, before we even get there, that really changes things. We have to depend on the Spirit and become listeners. But the beauty is we can then go with this huge expectation because God is a missionary God. He's already at work. He's already provoking questions. He's already making himself known, whispering to the lost, and sometimes in really bold and dramatic ways. So here in Matthew, very strategically, so early in the gospel in chapter 2, Matthew wants us to see and to know this, that, that God is a missionary God. So the Magi were on a journey from the familiar and the safe to the unknown, and they were serious seekers. They were listening for a God larger than what they knew. Maybe they'd seen the religious ways of Babylon, and they'd said to themselves, there's got to be more. And so they were looking and wondering, and then they saw something. They took a risk, and they were rewarded beyond their wildest dreams. They found the king whose kingdom will never end. And this is the third point above that these men made an incredible journey with very little evidence and they didn't have travel agents or a GPS, no booking.com. They went out following a star. Incredible. A walk in the dark. Just hints and guesses. They traveled hundreds of miles in a time when travel was difficult and dangerous to a foreign land in in the control of a foreign power, a land in conflict. It would be like traveling to Syria or to Libya today. They crossed several borders carrying considerable wealth, probably with only a small party of servants. And how they knew they were going, they were following a star. In the song Old Sage, some of you know the work of Steve Bell, he pictures what this was like. 
So we set off for a foreign land with no idea what we might find. Because when you're following a star, you have to walk at night. Sounds crazy even now. And living on mission in this world is like that. And we want to share God's vision. We don't want to convince God to share ours, which is why the rabbis like to say, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. In Isaiah, the same book where God tells us that a child will be born to us, God makes this promise that I will lead the blind by a way they know not. That's us. As Christians, we say we've found God and we know him, so we've already arrived, right? But then how do we remain learners? That's what the word disciple in the Greek really means. Somehow we have to remain learners. Somehow we have to know that whatever we think is our reality, it's just a husk of meaning. It's just a starting point. Yes, we've found Jesus, but there's so much more. Oh, so much more of God for us to discover. We have to understand what Lucy learned when she met Aslan the second time. She, she tells him, Aslan, how you've grown. No, says Aslan. It only seems that way because you have grown. As your capacity expands, I seem larger. As we grow, God seems to grow with us. There's more to him than when we first thought. That's important for a church on mission. If we are still learners, seekers, then we can connect with other seekers, like these magi. If we've already arrived, what is there to say? But if you meet others as a fellow seeker, then you have something in common. And then in the second part of this chapter, the story gets darker. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the, from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Like the song says that I shared with you back during Advent, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. The story of our missionary God is not a nice, safe, comfortable story. Adventure without risk is spelled Disneyland. As one writer put it, this world is real. It offers resistance to love. And that's our story too. That's our Christian story. Jesus and his family became refugees, fleeing a megalomaniac who, like most rulers, was way more interested in guarding his power than doing anything of benefit for his people. So pagan priests became spiritual pilgrims, risking dangerous roads to find the truth. And nothing has changed. The world hasn't changed. We had more refugees in recent years than at any other time in history. The Herods of the world still rage. Only the names have changed. Borders still open and close to serve the purposes of power. Death squads still make life precarious in Syria, Sudan, Libya, Nigeria, Yemen, Iran, Central America. The list just goes on and on, right? This is why we are sent into the world with good news. The most dangerous countries in the world, the darker the shade. It's all about wealth and power. Racism is alive and well, even in our own country. Violence against women is still a problem worldwide. One in four children live in poverty in, poverty in the USA in, uh, in 2019. 10% of Canadians live below the poverty line. 
In BC, 17% of children live below the poverty line. A massive number of First Nations children, 39%. We still need deliverance, as much as Israel did. We love Christmas for sentimental reasons, as well as for personal and religious reasons, but it becomes too easy to sanitize the birth of Jesus. And then it just becomes a poster for consumerism. Just please keep buying more and more, please. Jesus' birth is subversive. Radical entry of our missionary God into a dark and dangerous world. Our missionary God takes these huge risks, enters a broken world, makes himself small and vulnerable, tears himself from himself to bring healing to the world, and then asks us to follow him into that world, to enter the world in vulnerable ways with compassion, asks us to seek him, to get outside our comfortable walls, asks us to identify with the weak and the suffering, asks us to work for justice and for peace, to proclaim the truth of the gospel that Jesus has been exalted as Lord and Christ, and his rule challenges all other authority. There is no other king. Our first loyalty as believers is not to broken politicians, to their ideologies and agendas, but to God and his kingdom of peace. There's this beautiful old Christmas song. I don't think we hear it much anymore. Steve Bell has it, I think, on his Feast of Seasons album from way back when. It goes like this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. Mild and sweet, their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. Hate is strong, and it mocks a song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let's pray.